everyone. This is Derek Weston from the Food and Faith Podcast. A couple of years ago, we did an episode specifically for preachers and church leaders where we talked about the upcoming lectionary passages for Advent, and we tried to look at them through the lens of climate change and care for creation. It was a wonderful episode, but it felt a little bit out of the scope of what we normally do at the Food and Faith Podcast. So some of us had the idea to do a podcast that was a little bit more devoted to thinking about scripture and preaching through a green lens. So this is a test. Uh, we're going to do a pilot of three episodes, and I have four friends who will be joining me through the course of that, looking at scriptures for Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and Easter Sunday. And as we look at those scriptures, we'll be asking the questions, where is creation? Where is God? And where is there a call to action for us as the church? My two guests for this first episode, as we're looking at Palm Sunday passages, are Reverend Dr. Garrett Andrew, pastor of Nipomo Community Presbyterian Church in Arroyo Grande, California, and Avery Lamb, co-executive director at Creation Justice Ministries. And the passages that we're going to be looking at are Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40, and Psalm 118. All right. Our gospel reading for today comes from Luke's gospel, chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. So Avery, let me ask you, um, where is creation in this passage for you? Uh, I have to be honest, Palm Sunday is one of my favorite Sundays of the year because it's one of the few where uh, we can actually bring plants into the church. Mm. And uh, that always excites me. Um, and, you know, I think rereading this passage, I'm struck by how much detail about creation is in here how much of the like the setting the setting is just so rich in here i mean what we get here is um we get topography to start out with jesus going up to jerusalem and of course at this point this is sort of the culmination of jesus's ascension up the hill to jerusalem you know we, we have the setting of topography we have geography of bethphage and uh, and bethany and the place called mount olives you know, horticulture, this mountain of, of olive trees, you know, the importance of olives both to the economy um, and to the ecology of the place. We have husbandry with the colt, um, which is just fascinating for many reasons. You know, that image of the colt that had never been ridden before. We can get into that more later. And then, you know, notably absent from the Luke passage, but present in the Mark one and the reason why we wave palm branches on Palm Sunday, which is botany, you know, obviously the 
the people not only laying down their cloaks in the Mark passage, but also, you know, waving the, the leafy branches, as it says, um, whatever those branches were. Maybe they were olive branches. Maybe they were something else. So it's just there's a real richness of creation in here that I think helps set Jesus's triumphal entry here that it's, you know, it's not it's not Jesus entering into a city that is separate from creation, but it's Jesus entering into Jerusalem which is rich with the sights and sounds and smells of olives and, you know, uh, horses and, you know, everything that smells good and bad um, that comes with uh, the beauty of God's creation. Mm. What, a, what about the uh, husbandry of the cult is, is interesting for you and captivating for you? That's idea of this, this unridden cult. I think the, the image of the cult really gets to the core of what I think is happening in this passage, which is Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, inverting the empire ethics of the triumphal entry, uh, inverting the parades of war, um, inverting the mature, experienced war horses, that emperors and other, you know, um, generals, uh, empire army would be riding in um, similar in a similar fashion into Jerusalem for the war parades. Um, and what we see here is, or Jesus says to the disciples, go and into the village and find a cult that has never been ridden. So Jesus isn't asking for a cult that is, you know, experienced, that has been trained, that is, um, you know, a star-studded warhorse. Jesus is asking for a cult that has never been ridden, that is potentially never trained um, to bring that cult. And that is the cult that Jesus is deciding to ride. And so there's, there's, um, there's almost an undomestication of war that is happening here, that Jesus is reclaiming this creature as not a tool of the empire to enact the, the horrors of war, but a tool of peace upon which Jesus rides in as the disciples declare peace in heaven. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of peace. And I think it is, it is a husbandry that is a, a husbandry of peacemaking rather than a husbandry of war making. Mm. Oh, I love that. And there's a there's an innocence to it as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think if you're making that contrast between the the horses that have been used for war and this unridden, unbridled colt, there's a there's a, almost an innocence, a naivete, a, 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 a meekness, a mildness to this creature um, that's being brought to the front. Kind of like yeah, that. Absolutely. Garrett, thoughts on that? On the cult in particular, I actually thought that was kind of brilliant. And especially if um, we take that notion, too, that uh, is so often prevalent in so many people's thoughts, that on the other side of Jerusalem at the same time, Pilate's coming in with that kind of sense of empire. Uh, so, so Avery, where, where for you is God interacting with creation? And I think a little bit of what you've, what you've said about the, the cult hints to that. But where else do you feel that God is interacting with creation here? You know, the other piece of this that I find really compelling is the last line of the passage, 
Um, and I'll read the last couple lines here, starting at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. And I, I can't help but draw a parallel between this passage and um, in Romans, Paul writing about creation groaning and travail. Mm. You know, the, and the other times, I think that's one of the most notable instances where, you know, there is a shout that is attributed cr to creation. Um, but what we see here is, is a contrast here. It's the stones shouting out in joy, shouting out in praise for the, the, um, the one who comes in peace, the king who comes in peace. And in Romans, the stones crying out in travail, groaning for the restoration, groaning for exactly what is happening here. Mm. And I think it's notable that Jesus is saying that, you know, even when my people are silent, even when they are silent because they are censored by the empire or they are silent because they choose to not speak out on behalf of my people and my creation that is being oppressed, even the stones will shout out. Mm. The stones will shout out in pain. They will shout out in travail and they will continue shouting out in praise. And I just think that's so compelling for us right now when we can look around and we can see the stones shouting out in travail um, and in places we can see them shouting out in praise too. And I think there's, you know, this is, this whole scene um, is just an image of the eschatological inbreaking of God's kingdom that in this moment, Jesus is triumphantly entering as the kingdom of peace or as the king of peace, bringing, you know, the kingdom of heaven here. And yet, like Garrett said, empires ent entering into Jerusalem on the other side of the city. In here, the stones are, you know, shouting out in joy and in praise. And yet, uh, you know, just in a few days, you know, maybe in a week or a year, the stones will be, the stones will be shouting out in travail. So, you know, God is interacting with, um, you know, both the beauty and the devastation that comes with, you know, our work of restoring the kingdom of heaven and bringing it about here. Uh, I think that's a beautiful connection to Romans eight, the idea of, of, of the groaning of creation longing for the children of God to be revealed, which is, which is what we get in Romans eight. You know, there, there's, there's this idea that I, I immediately go to the idea that they would be, the rocks would be crying out in praise, but that there also might be the sense to which the rocks would be crying out, trying to get humanity's attention that the son of God is coming and the son of God is in their presence and that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that a lot of what it feels like is going on with our current climate disaster is creation screaming out, trying to get our attention that the kingdom of God is at hand. Um, yeah. That connection to Romans 8 is gorgeous. And even if we were to maintain kind of a sense of praise, while I think making that connection to uh, the overall kind of impact and recognizing that it's not simply praise that creation screams out. But just taking the moment to recognize that the final line of this passage, this uh, the gospel lectionary, which is what most people will gravitate toward on Palm Sunday anyway, 
Um, in the midst of, I mean, people are looking at this now. I mean, not only do we have a climate crisis, that at least we're beginning to see a wider recognition that it's actually happening than a straight up denial. Mm. Um, but you add in pandemic for two years, war going on, um, people going through existential kind of crisis in the midst of everything. And the isolation that so often uh, people want to experience in church, like it's a let me escape all of this as opposed to sit with it. Um, to, to say it out, the, the, the stones themselves will, will shout out in praise or even then to bring it to, to, to recognize that the final line of the passage is the fullness of a part of the creation that's right next to Jesus will begin that. But then to emphasize the fullness of creation. And I mean, I, I know I went to Revelation 4. I know everybody's favorite idea is to go to Revelation 4 <laughs> when they read this. But um, in Revelation 4, you have John, uh, you know, enter the heavenly realms uh, through this door that's open and uh, encounter the one seated in the throne and, and commenting about that. And then there's these 24 elders and 24 thrones around there. But then you have these four living creatures um, with eyes all around them. And they're the ones, the four living creatures that so obviously represent the four corners of the earth and the fullness of creation that begin by shouting out praise to the one on the throne. And it's only after the praise that shouted out to the one on the throne by the four living creatures that the four elders or the 24 elders get up and now prostrate themselves before the one on the throne and throw down their golden crowns. And, uh, and now they themselves respond with worship, recognizing that the one who's on the throne is worthy to be praised because the one on the throne created all that is there. And it's, uh, and well, that's the very kind of cosmic piece. It's felt to me, especially as you were talking, Avery, that that too, with the, the shouting out of the stones, it's, it's um, if my silencers or if my followers are silenced, now creation will shout out. And what is the thing that happens when creation shouts out? Well, I mean, how many of us still go? I mean, Derek, you posted that thing about where people find um you know, connection to God and, and found that more people had that peace with in nature than in prayer by and large. And that's, I simply think, because in nature, we see so often and very clearly when we separate ourselves from the way that we build things up and, and, and bastardize creation by creating, I mean, uh, I was driving through San Francisco recently and it wasn't beautiful. It just looked like we put concrete on top of something that was beautiful mm. and so we go to these places and we see that shouting out of creation and and we find it easier ourselves to shout out and the beauty of that piece too tell them to be quiet if they're quiet then creation which is that first and foremost piece that worships the creator um and worship too of course just uh it comes from english that means worthy ship like the one that's, who's worthy of worship is worthy because ta-da it's here and and you feel that when we do that and, I, and and the beauty of stones like notice he doesn't say the mountains or the olive trees or something else but something as inane as stones like something we kick out of the way now it's becoming <laughs> like the, the the groundwork from which it, all of the praise begins to happen and and i pondered if he silenced them and then the shout, stone shouted out 
would those very people start worshiping all the more if they pay attention to the stones? Um, And so it's kind of like, what are we paying attention to? And, And at the end of this passage, Jesus makes us pay attention to something as simple as rocks and pebbles. The idea that the Pharisees would be paying attention to the disciples instead of to Jesus instead of to the one who is causing this, this, this commotion, who is causing this, um, you know, if the rocks cried out, would we be so, would, would we be so caught up in the rocks that we are forgetting the reason that the rocks, that there is someone in our presence who could make the rocks cry out. It's, it's a, it's a really evocative image, that idea of rocks crying out. And that's, that's what Jesus does really well is gives us these incredibly evocative images from creation. And, uh, when when we when we don't just glide past them and just uh, ignore them and actually sit with them, we realize that Jesus is doing some incredibly radical things with his language. Uh, where is God inviting us to interact with creation here? Yeah, um, another piece of this passage that I want to draw our attention to is the Pharisees at the end. Um, and what I read the Pharisees doing here is. It's really politics of respectability, kind of enforcing civility. And Derek, kind of on on what you were just saying, is like, why were they so concerned about the disciples and not concerned about Jesus? And I wonder if that's because Jesus is one of them. You know, Jesus is a rabbi. Jesus, you know, some scholars will argue that Jesus was a Pharisee. So, you know, they had their interfamily conflict, of course, that comes up a lot. But, um, he was one of them. And yet all of these followers of his, you know, Gentiles and outcasts, the religious leaders look at them and say, Shh, just, just keep it down. Just don't, don't cause a ruckus. You know, you, you, Jesus, please tell, this isn't how we do things. Please ask your followers to, to quiet down. We don't want to bring too much attention to ourselves from the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think What's so beautiful about the disciples shouting out like this is that they are ignoring the politics of of respectability, that they are just engaging in joyful celebration of the peacemaker. They are, you know, celebrating that Jesus is coming to restore all of creation. And, you know, when we think about the stones too, I think, you know, we could read this as, shouting out in solidarity with the rest of creation. Mm. So, you know, similar to what we were talking about earlier of, you know, if, if we are silent, the stones will still shout out. So why don't we just shout out along with the stones? Mm. And I think one way that we can read this is that God is inviting us to praise the beauty of creation, to praise Jesus as the restorer of creation Um, the one who is coming to bring peace and to not fall into a politics of respectability, Mm. to not fall into civility as the guiding force in our life, but to call for justice, to call for um, beauty and to not be ashamed of the joy and the delight that we find in creation and in uh, the restoration that comes uh, with with Jesus. My wife and I have been reading this um, 
devotional during Lent written by Joan Chittister. And in a couple of the readings, and actually one of the readings this morning, we talked about weeping and and whether or not weeping is encouraged by our faith communities whether or not like the 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 deep wailing the deep you know and we're like well in in our faith communities in presbyterian mainline white respectable no there's no place for for wailing there's no place for that that deep crying and and you know talking about like in the black church there's there are there's sometimes place for it um, in in a lot of our immigrant communities of faith. There's place for it. The idea that what the Pharisees are 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 kind of acting asking for here is decorum that they're asking to be, you know, uh, in, in Presbyterian speak to be decent and in order as as they're coming into the city. And and the response from Jesus is there's really no time or space here for that. There's no time and space here for decent and in order. There's no time and space here for respectability. There's 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 a huge upheaval of the system that is coming. And that is to be celebrated. That is to be um, that is to be greeted with with full-throated joy and full-throated enthusiasm we get to be a part of that along with creation that full-throated enthusiasm for what is coming i know the lectionary text ends at verse 40 but i think what comes next is also really important to pay attention to which the next the next verse is as he came near and saw the city he wept over Mm -hmm. it saying if you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Mm. That is, Jesus is coming into the city on his triumphal, you know, his triumphal entry. He's weeping mm. because of the ways of war, the ways of empire that are devastating the city. And so, you know, just you talking about weeping make, makes me think about, you know, what is the, the, the proper response here? And, and, you know, this is one of, I don't know, other the only other occasion that I know that Jesus wept in the Gospels is, of course, over Lazarus, you know, so it doesn't happen often. But there is enough sorrow about the ways of the empire that even as he is being celebrated and delighted by his disciples and the stones that are crying out in praise, he is weeping as he enters into the city. Mm-hmm. And um, I think even highlighting the idea of urgency along with everything that you guys have said, just continuing that also recognizes the moment um, that Jesus is in. So it gives total um, due credit to people's kind of expectations of, Palm Sunday as well. Like there's an urgency to this moment and then to recognize the urgency of our own moment where we can have that fullness of creation. And I actually, uh, Avery, that's a brilliant job of like, it's worth opening the door to the next couple of verses that then has this, because it demonstrates more of Jesus' urgency. I mean, if this was Mark's, it's easier because Mark has that the longest section of Mark is the preparation for Palm Sunday and going into it. So you get that sense of urgency just in Mark because it suddenly slows down. 
um, but to move toward the weeping and play with the praising. Um, and then the recognition, Derek, that you had with regards to I mean, Presbyterians, the frozen chosen decently in order. They formed the United States government based off Presbyterian polity. And, and so maybe some of the injustices even of, of our own kind of way of doing government is corresponding to the injustices of some parts of the church. And, and there is almost a call to abandon all of that in this moment to recognize the urgency. Jesus wasn't going to let any of the decorum go like now the now creation will shout out and the move toward weeping and the move toward recognizing true emotion in the midst of everything that it's both going on then because if we're going to be honest with regards to holy week too and what it means classically theologically for christians is we're moving into the most cataclysmic universal eschatological times that can possibly exist and we have a tendency of turning palm sunday into a small easter sunday of just a celebration easter's like oh we got to celebrate some more but it's not transformative at all um, we we allow it to kind of exist in our kind of ways by keeping it decently or being part of that empire. And so, like, just mention all of that. Mention how we don't want to do this. Mention how it makes us uncomfortable. Uh, and, uh, emotion makes us uncomfortable. But, <laughs> I mean, again, if we just pay attention to some of the, the stats that I saw recently, I don't even remember why I read it. I know for these kind of things, you should probably know where you're getting it. 40% of young people in 10 different industrialized countries um, don't want to have any children because they're afraid for what the world will be. And of that same study, I think it was 60% of young people, and this is like 30 and lower, believe that the older generations don't care about them. And if, I mean, so this is industrialized and huge, huge amounts of people, either two thirds or what, like, like feel like they're not cared about and are afraid to have children. And we want to come to church and like and 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 still kind of maintain all of this. It it's almost now, and I didn't think this until Avery and you started talking, Derek. And like now it's like I'm like, oh yeah, like no, this is a this is a call that God is demanding from us. Uh tears and laughter simultaneously mm. uh, to recognize the, the the beauty of things and the terror of things all at the same time. And it does the most amount of justice for what Jesus is simultaneously going through. Mm. Um, and so it, it, it removes us from this kind of way of turning Palm Sunday into a, you know, like, oh, it's another day where I get to sing, you know, Hosanna in the highest kind of stuff where on the lips of children, the sweet Hosanna's rang. Well, now let's actually talk about the children who are singing Hosanna, which what means save us. Save us. <laughs> and and they're screaming this, we're singing it, and now we want to like, shh. And then I put, no, the fullness of creation, it's screaming out. And if, uh, I mean, if I if I preach the, the gospel passage, which I'm tempted to now, um, this sense of like even describing the fullness of things and and in the day and and how we can get both lost in the beauty but let's not forget the absolute pain so you've you've both kind of hinted at this a little bit so where is there a call to action for the church here in this passage i think where i want to start with this is looking at the 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 fullness of the trajectory of Jesus's entry here. And, um, you know, I, I teased this earlier by going one verse ahead, but I'm, I'm going to look 
kind of through the end of the chapter here and thinking about this, because I think if we're if we're preaching the lectionary, we need to think about the context in which it's occurring, right? <laughs> That's part of it. And what we see in, you know, verses 28 to 40 is, is you know, this, this ethics of a reversal of Jesus holding up the mirror to the empire and bringing his kingdom of peace on an unwritten cult and, you know, attesting to these humble stones that will shout out. Then in this next section in verses 41 through 44, this is a really interesting section here. Not only is Jesus weeping as he enters into Jerusalem, but then he he goes into this, really this prophetic speech. I mean, this, this sounds like it could come from the prophets here. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children with you. They will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. You know, that, that could be Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Honestly, that sounds, yeah. that sounds like the prophets there. And then what does Jesus do next? He goes into the temple and he starts turning the tables because of all of the people who are profiting off of the temple by selling their goods at the temple. So what we have here is we have, we have acts of praise. We have um, prophetic speech and grief. And then we have this prophetic act of Jesus actually doing something and turning the tables, you know, not just saying, not just saying it, not just, you know, praising out it and speaking about it, but, but ending in um, tactile action and casting people out of the temple. So, you know, I think, where is the call to action for the church here? It's that let's, we, we need to be doing all of this. Um, mm. You know, we need the praise of the beauty of Christ's coming and the beauty of restoration. We need to grieve the devastation of war, which feels extremely pertinent right now. Mm. The devastation of the ecological catastrophes we need to speak out prophetically and truthfully about what's happening. Facts are not, you know, I appreciate you bringing facts in here, Garrett, because I think while we don't want to get subsumed by the facts, we do need to ground ourselves in the reality that climate change is here and that it is crushing many communities to the ground. If we're going to use the, the language from Jesus's passage here. And then, y'all, we need to engage in some direct action, that there need to be acts that we do that tangibly follow up on this prophetic speech and the praise, because that's where the triumphal entry ends. He doesn't come into the temple and give a sermon. He comes into the temple and turns the tables. Mm. I think there's a call there. Would, uh, you know, if I was having to preach this right now, I, I think I'd, I'd have to call it like, uh, will they do it alone? And then play like, and, and elongate the, the piece. Because again, context is important. And I think context, especially for Palm Sunday is important because we've turned Palm Sunday by and large into some kind of liturgical children's production. And I don't, and I, and I don't mean to undermine or whatever. It, 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 it lacks some mm, 
So let's give it its oomph back. So are the are the stones going to have to praise alone? Is Jesus going to have to weep alone? Mm. Is the temple going to have to be cleansed by someone alone? Or mm. are we who proclaim that we are these who are followers of this man going to be a part of it with him? And almost then kind of like as as and, and then we get to make the observations of what our world is like, not necessarily on a big scale, although it should be mentioned. Because people need something concrete with which to do. So in in our own communities, what then can we give people as an option for some kind of action, some kind of peace where they can leave that and not just feel like they heard a sermon, but then maybe some of the, temp, the, the tables were upended. And, and the beauty of that is that in Luke's gospel, that all happens on the same day, right? Like that's not Mark's gospel where it happens the next day. So throw it all into the same day since we're in Luke. Like the triumphal entry ends with Jesus cleansing this temple and getting ready for something new. And and I mean, again, we go right from Palm Sunday. People skip through Holy Week, get to Easter Sunday, and it's all like, oh, yeah, good. I feel better. I mean, I needed all that praise. I, the world's been too much. I need the escapism, the opiate of the masses crap that can so often happen in churches because we want to feed people what they want. But we've fed them crap. For too, I'm sorry, am I allowed to say that? Yes. For too long. <laughs> and like, and it's, it's, uh, and now we're, 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 you know, it's uh, our health is horrible. Our spiritual health is horrible. It's kind of like a call to like, are these are are they going to do it alone? Are we just going to stand on the watch and 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 pay attention and say, oh, that's nice. I feel better and go home. Or the are the stones going to have to go because we haven't? Is Jesus going to have to weep alone because we won't? Um, are the tables going to be up upended by the Lord alone and in our own presence because we think that we're all right? And instead of that, let's participate as he's participating and march triumphantly and knowing that we have to change the whole of the world. And that's okay because that's our call. And so no one has to do it alone. And now we'll figure out something to do together and then come up with in the sermon, a little piece, at least a little beginning, or if the church is already doing something, highlight what the church is doing and how people can get involved in that. And it's worth celebrating what churches are already doing. Because there's so many churches that are doing such incredible work. And maybe even if one church isn't doing such incredible work, highlighting what some others are doing and saying, we can do this too. So they're not having to do it alone. Let's join our voice to the chorus of voices that are already going about the weeping, the praising, the justice seeking, the desire. So that when someone says you need to silence them, it's not even possible to silence the full chorus of those who are already putting their voice in and putting their work in. And, uh, you know, and people are like, well, I, I said something. And I always remember a story of, I don't remember which preacher it was from England, traveling to the United States by ship way back in the day. And he was traveling with some assistant and there was a fire on the ship. And the assistant said to like, gather, the captain was like, gather all the men so we can get a, a, a line and put, put this fire out. And the assistant to this pastor said, well, you guys do that. We're going to go pray over here because we're holy men. And the pastor was, who was famous was like, I don't know about my assistant, but I can pray and work at the same time. Give me a bucket. And um, <laughs> it's just kind of like, it's time for us to, to pick up a bucket. Uh, the world is burning quite literally. Well, 
let's move on. Let's move on to Psalm, Psalm 118, verses 1 to 2, 19 to 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Garrett, where is creation in this psalm? In this, well, first and foremost, um, this is a... we almost hear the same exact psalm on Easter again. And um, this is one of the Hillel psalms uh, that are used by the Jews in Passover to end it. It starts on Psalm 113, goes through Psalm 118. And so this is a familiar psalm to those who are even watching Jesus on Palm Sunday, which is why Mark's gospel pulls out so much of this, especially. And I mean, the save us in verse 25 is Hosanna. Uh, Blessed is the one who came, comes in the name of the Lord is mentioned by Mark. And I know we're not in Mark, we're in loop. But um, and, and so we have this kind of piece. It's already connected to Passover. Um, and, and, and so they're, they're seeing this initially, and it begins to focus on Jesus as kind of that Passover lamb that John does a lot better than Luke or Mark or Matthew, but that's neither here nor there. I mean, it has the piece, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, which is if you can ask people to quote something from memory who have no knowledge of the Bible, you'll get two basic responses. Jesus wept, and this is the day that the Lord has made, and let us rejoice and be glad in it. And Jesus wept just because it's short and easy. But even if we just take that moment, and if we can recognize the pieces of this, and and Passover is a festival that, like all Jewish festivals, are wrapped around the calendar of both uh, harvest festivals in the fall and first fruits festivals that are in the spring. And so Passover, while having this connection to the Exodus, and this is probably, well, it depends on who you talk to. Some think it might be like Hezekiah a little bit, or some might think it's one of the post-exilic ones of them coming back. It certainly has this reference to the Exodus and to kind of an exile and God having saved us in the past. And now some kind of thing asking God to save us in the present. And, And so I love that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And if we just take that and recognize what that truly means, recognize that this is done by people who are already putting their ritual cultic practices situated in even a more ancient version of how this is happening during the first fruits festival, which when we dive into Leviticus, we see that the whole practice of the Passover is a first fruits festival still. And that's why you're bringing these things to God and having them sacrifice whatever else. And so that connection to the land that is more ancient than even the Exodus, that is a part of this Psalm and a part then of what Jesus is doing, even as he marches in and participating in this whole kind of piece. But now we're paying attention to the day. And I mean, how's, how else can we be connected to creation but to recognize we're in this moment and we have exactly what we need? 
um, if we're paying attention. And while we we think we might need more or want more or whatever else, I know that I've I've never had to worry. Uh, I've been worried about not having food, but even when I haven't had the money to get food, I still end up with somebody feeding me. Um, I've had a roof over my head every day of my life. Um, by and large, most of us have those two basic things that we absolutely need to just be. And, and so it forces us to begin to ask, or not ask the question, but just to pay attention. And almost going back to like the, the, the stone shouting out, paying attention to something small. Or when Jesus says, look at the wildflowers in the field. And, and have we ever actually taken them seriously and stopped and paid attention to the wildflowers in the field just because he said it? Or this is the day that the Lord has made. Now just pay attention to it for a moment and see the fullness of creation. And the beauty of it is right after that, in verse 25, save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. And it might allow us, oh, I'm probably skipping ahead in terms of what that might mean, but Hosanna, again, the Hosanna is right there. The save us is right there. The recognition that we still need salvation from a moment that we feel like, hey, we can talk about what God has done for us in the past. We can look at the joy of this moment, but there is a necessity for salvation in this moment. Again, it can be pandemic. It can be war. It can be climate catastrophe. It can be ecological disaster. It can be this idea of the division within our own society that is causing us to want to hate and rip each other apart. Whatever it is, we need some kind of salvation. And I would really appreciate it if I ever got to see somebody just force the congregation to stop and pay attention to the day that the Lord has made, as opposed to that. It's so easy. If I were to get in front of my church and say, this is the day the Lord has made, and then shut up, everybody would immediately say, let us rejoice. And what would it be like then to say, this is the psalm that the people, the ancient Jews, would say at the end of Passover. It includes pieces in it too about bringing branches and putting them on the horns of the altar, which in uh, Mark's gospel, not Luke's gospel, but Mark's gospel, they are bringing in branches and most likely probably because they're pruning those branches to help with the fruit growing better and things of that nature as an agricultural people to begin with. And so like, it's kind of this offering, but it's connecting itself to this song. something that they would be doing at this time of Passover anyways, as they're doing all these kinds of pieces. And so actually paying attention to it and rejoicing in it and being glad in it so that we develop a heart toward creation. That is what God intended for us in the first place, as opposed to just say, yeah, this is the day of the Lord. And it sounds great. I want to see the song. This is the day the Lord has made that or something of that nature. And um, stopping and saying, let's actually rejoice in it. And what does it mean to rejoice in it? And how can we rejoice in it? How are we not rejoicing in it? And where do we need God to save us so that we can truly be a success? And then to recognize, since it's Palm Sunday, and we can't really focus on this. No one's going to focus on the psalm on Palm Sunday by itself. But blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And again, even then refocusing ourselves on Jesus in that moment. What does Jesus give us? that allows us to see all this connection and experience a connection whereby we might be able to uh, be saved from it. Uh, the restoration of creation a little bit from it, the pieces of things, uh, just paying attention to some of the things that we do that are destructive and beginning to mitigate that initially. I can't help but 
draw another connection here just with the stones stones are, are coming up a lot here um and verse 22 the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone mm. and i'm reminded of the the humility of the stones that Gara was talking about that they're stones we kick aside and here literally a stone that was kicked aside the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone Again, the the humility of creation and that which is oppressed or that which is forgotten that is actually the one in whom all of creation is held together. So I think there's there's a lot that we could play with connecting these two passages, and I don't want to go too deep into that right now, but I'm I'm hearing the, the shouts from the stones today. Uh, so where is... Garrett, where is God interacting with creation in Psalm 118? Um, with creation, again, this is the day the Lord has made. It's, it's so hard not to see now. And it, I think it's mm-hmm. okay to beat people over the head with that. <laughs> like, um, you know, I, I recall when, when I was uh, in high school, I was on a backpacking trip and my father was a part of it. Most of us were younger. And you know, I was young and strong and and uh, couldn't wait to get from point A to point B and show how fast I got there. And uh, I remember one day I, I got in and, uh, and my father came in dead last and I couldn't wait to give my father as much grief as I possibly could. I was like, nice job, old gray bearded man. Like you, uh, you got here five hours after I did because I'm so fast and strong. And, and he was like, yeah, well, you know, I was in no rush because did you notice these waterfalls that we hiked by? And uh, I stopped and put my feet in for a while. I'm like, I didn't see any waterfalls. He was like, and, and there was this wonderful meadow that had a stream going through it. It was so glorious that I just had to stop and sit with it for a while. I'm like, I didn't see any meadow with anything because I was. Um, and so just kind of forcing people again to say, yeah, this is the day the Lord has made. And so again, it opens up the fullness. Where's God interacting? But then how's God interacting with, us so that we might see the fullness of creation comes right away with this kind of sense of thanksgiving i mean it's a it's a call and response it's a liturgy you know let let all of israel say you know here's the steadfast love of god endures forever and um and in that piece but actually then paying attention to it and i think you see that in verse 19 open to me the gates of righteousness that i may enter through them and give thanks to the lord this is the gate of the lord the righteous shall enter through it now it seems to limit who's able to go inside the righteous now if we're not seeing any of these things and we have to kind of immediately assume okay well i'm not righteous but now when you start to talk about kind of religious language what's it mean to be righteous does it mean that you're somehow pietistic or doing something or is it a sense of right living with god and it really is the only way we can have right living with god the recognition that we rely on the divine for everything and so much of our brokenness with with the creation around us is simply a fact of not relying on the divine and the gift of the divine and then being able to say i can't pass through this gate until i recognize my own connectiveness to all things so that i can actually say this is the day the lord has made and rejoice and be glad in it and scream out for that salvation that i still need but none of us will be able to recognize that until we begin to understand that right living with the divine necessitates right living with everything else around us 
and the recognition of the interconnectedness of all things. And again, you know, like none of the atoms in my body existed in my body five years ago. So that means I am so, every time I take a breath, I mean, I'm, I'm connected. And we now know what happens when you can take a breath with people who have organisms floating through them that can cause great destruction. But nevertheless, like uh, the things I smell, the air I get, the, everything is a gift of the creation around me. But if I begin to think of myself as some isolated being, I can never get into past this gate that allows me to give thanks to begin with. So uh, God is begging for us to give thanks. The whole thing is begging for us to give thanks. It's a it's a whole psalm of giving thanks for what God has done, which again is connected to the spring festival of first fruits. Look at what God has done. We are able to eat for another year. We're getting what we need. We've been saved from slavery. We've been saved from exile. We can paint it to Jesus. We've been saved from sin. We've been saved. But now, what's it mean to be saved from all these things, and what do we still need to be saved from? And in our culture of, of rugged individualism, of people who say, I'm a self-made person, of, of those who lift up the exploits of billionaires who want to shoot themselves into space, of, of how we don't pay attention to the connectedness of all around us, whereby we can say, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we turn it into some kind of crappy praise song instead of one of the rooted pieces of scripture. The reason it's so wonderful for people to read is because even if we do not know it, it rooted us, it roots us into the truth of the divine. That every moment, every day is a gift. And until we can see it as a gift, we'll never enter into the gates of righteousness that allow us to one thank God and then the two ask for salvation because we know it's not okay. The invitation of seeing the world as creation mm. is really what, what's going on in, in this verse. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That when we see the world as a warehouse to be exploited, when we see the world as, you know, a wilderness, maybe that is, beautiful, but separate from human life that inhibits our ability to rejoice and be glad in the world. But when we see the world as creation, that opens the gates of righteousness, right? That's, we can enter into the world in a different way. We can rejoice in the world. We can rejoice in the beauty and the joy and the beneficence that God has given us. Mm -hmm. So just a, a few of the reflections that I have from what you've shared, Gary, and that was great. Where God is acting with creation, is interacting with creation for, from my perspective is God is gifting creation. God is gifting creation to us. God is gifting creation to humanity. Um, and God has always gifted creation to us. Like creation has never been... Uh, you know, a, a thing we've had to work for. Now we we you know there's there's work required in in the tilling of land and the care of land, but the land itself is still a gift, and and that that gift that God gives us then gives us the things that sustain us from day to day. That's that's remarkable, and and 
for us to get to the place of having gratitude, having the kind of gratitude that is life-changing, the kind of gratitude that is life-giving, the kind of gratitude that is revolutionary for this gift that continues to give, that continues to produce. I think that's, that's, that's where I see God interacting with creation here is, is this, this continual giving of God's self to, to us through creation. So then where is God inviting us to interact with creation? What's it mean to give Thanksgiving? I mean, like you, you pointed it out right then, like the whole Psalm is a Psalm of gratitude. Um, It was Martin Luther's favorite Psalm. Because not only was it a psalm of gratitude, but it was a psalm that made him realize that God would save him when nothing else would do. Mm. And yet it's a psalm that is totally, in my opinion, again, maybe because I've been looking at it through the lenses that you gave me with regards to the sense of creation. Um, but already, just like, I mean, it, it, the Lord is God and he has given us light. What if I just stopped there for a moment and talked about sun? Mm. And what light does, mm. and what, uh, and you know, even playing with the notion still to, to to steal from Carl Sagan. I didn't know this was Carl Sagan until I said it in that sermon, and someone was like, "Oh, nice job quoting Carl Sagan." <laughs> uh, but like, uh, <laughs> we're stardust powered by starlight, mm. and 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 God has given us this kind of light. So it's not just that we are being gifted creation to me, but that we are inherently a part of that. So like, it's not a, a, we are part of the gift to which we've been gifted. And again, that connectedness to all things, bind up the festival procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. And so now it becomes a part of the worship. And as Avery said too, there's very few times when we bring in plants uh, into church. I mean, maybe we'll do like poinsettias around Christmas and lilies around Easter, but the time when they're like not just decoration, but part of the liturgical moment is mm. Palm Sunday. And this psalm has them as part of more ancient liturgical moments than any of us understand. And uh and, and binding them together with the altar to show that there's no way we can separate. And I mean the ancient altars were all made out of earth anyway. Um, I mean, again, let's not forget that like, the, the word Adam uh, comes from the word earth. The word human comes from the word earth. All the ancients understood that we come from earth. Uh, we, we've managed to forget all of that. And this is really an invitation to recognize that true Thanksgiving can only be discovered in knowing that, remembering that. Uh, that again, it's right there. Let his steadfast love endure forever. And it goes to the end. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. So this inevitably is a song of God's steadfast love and what God has done for us in the past, what God, we believe will do for us in the future, that this is the day. So it's past, present, future. It's the fullness of creation put right before us for everything and giving thanks to God. And if we can give thanks to God for the fullness of creation, then we're actually doing something. So it has to be true gratitude. Like that's what this Psalm is forcing us to do. And thereby the question is, what does true gratitude look like? Is true gratitude someone who says, I am really grateful for my children and then goes home and beats them, abuses them and doesn't feed them. 
It's true gratitude when someone says, I am grateful for my spouse, and then goes about not doing anything to actually love and care for that spouse. It's true gratitude when someone's like, I'm grateful for my home, but then goes about not taking care of their home until it falls apart, and then they can no longer be grateful for it. It's true gratitude. To say that we're grateful for something necessitates that we love it. And we recognize that our gratitude for God is because of God's steadfast love, which is huge in the Old Testament. The hesed of God is massive. And it's just sad that so many of us will say, well, this Old Testament God or people in the pews, this Old Testament God. No, no, no. It's, it, the, the God of love of First John is still the God whose steadfast love endures forever of the Old Testament. And the fullness of this recognition that God has given us everything. And if God has given us everything and we can say, hey, let's have some gratitude. Not only let's rejoice and be glad in it, but the fullness is like, I give thanks to God. How does our thanks to us? So are we saying, I give thanks to God for the earth and now I'm going to go um, abuse it like I abuse my children. Mm. I'm going to go destroy it like I, I destroy my marriage. I'm going to go do that. Like, no. What does gratitude mean? Is our gratitude real? And if Meister Eckhart once said, which is absolutely true, if the only prayer you only say is thank you, that would suffice then how does that prayer become a reality in our living so that that prayer is a living prayer as opposed to a spoken prayer that's never really true? And again, it necessitates a certain kind of righteousness that I don't believe, at least me personally, I'm currently living to enter into the gates therein. So it becomes a call. And any good preacher, you don't want to, and you don't want a preacher who's going to hold the Bible and point at the congregation and say, you fools, like, like, be one with these people trying to figure it out yourself and recognize that if there's any triangulation going on, it's the Bible versus the preacher and the congregation together. And so, like, how have we been weak in our own recognition that, like, we're hurting things, destroying things, that we're not going through this, that we say, oh, I'm so thankful, but we don't live into a gratitude whereby those things for which we say we're thankful know that we're thankful for them. And uh, again, I'll use my children as a solid example, even though I know you're not supposed to do that in sermons. I don't care what the preacher teachers say. Like if I told my children I was grateful for them, and then I went through this time where I got saturated in work and I wasn't paying any attention to my children. And my, my daughter, who's wise beyond her years, I said some point in time during the dinner where we were actually sitting down and I, I've been away, I've been writing, I've been teaching things, I've been in conferences and I, and I get home and I say, I'm so grateful for you guys. And my daughter says, I haven't noticed. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> but I needed to hear it. Mm. And I ponder how many times we come to church and say, oh, I'm so grateful for all of this. And if God wants to say to us, I haven't noticed. Mm. And maybe in that kind of thing, like, it's such a stunning thing. Again, this was Luther's favorite, and he was a reactionary type and, and, and needed the kind of thing. But it forces me to ponder gratitude in a way that must be real because it's shouting at me to pay attention to God's love. And it ends with give thanks twice. It ends with give thanks, not just pay attention and rejoice and be glad in it, but give thanks. And will our gratitude be real? And I think the only way the gratitude gets to be real is um, years and years and years ago when uh, um, I was watching uh, inside the actor's studio, 
And so James Lipton is talking to Danny Glover, and you know, he always asks that question, like, when you die and meet God, what do you want God to do? And um, and, and Danny Glover, I and I don't have any remember of anything else other than this. I think I was like 15 years old when I watched it. And and Danny Glover said, I'd love it if God said thank you. And I was like, damn, even as a 15-year-old, like, damn. <laughs> like, like, so we're talking of gratitude to God. But I think the only way to live out gratitude to God is to live in such a way that at the end of my life, God might be willing to say thank you to me. Mm. And this is a psalm that's an invitation of asking God for salvation, too, and gratitude and everything else. But how is my gratitude lived out where God's gratitude might be the response to mine? Just one 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 thing that I, I want to draw attention to here is um, here's the question, who is the us? Mm of this passage, you know, this is all in the plural, that this is a, a song of praise that is not an individual praise. Mm-hmm. And I wonder too, if it's a song of praise, that's not just a human praise either. Mm. And what if the us of this passage is us praising alongside the stones, us praising alongside the branches that are participating in the festal procession, Mm. Um, alongside the horns of the altar, you know, maybe this is an invitation to extend our worship, extend our praise to include the rest of creation. Mm. The majority of the psalm is actually in the first person singular and it switches to the third Mm. person or the first person plural that way. And so I think that's brilliant because uh, when you get to verse 19 initially, it's like open to me the gates of righteousness that yeah. I may enter therein. And so only after entering therein, where like if I'm playing with the same theme, where like it's my recognition of my connectiveness to everything else that is in fact righteousness, then yeah, it becomes the us of the fullness of creation. That's brilliant, dude. Well, and and, and where it shifts to us is this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. <laughs> it's almost as if upon reflecting upon you know the beauty of creation. Oh, let us all rejoice together. Yeah, we can't do it by our, myself. It's not possible by myself. But yeah. now that I know I'm not by myself. And how does that change 25? Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us all of creation success. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's not prosperity gospel right there. That's no. a completely different prayer. If if the us is the created order, all of creation give asking for success, that's not human success. That's a completely different metric of success. Where is there a call to action in the church? And how is this tied to what we've heard from from Luke 19. I, I love the way, again, Avery went about making sure that we see Jesus weeping and the cleansing of the temple and, um, and the rocks. I, and I love the way the stones got to be compared with uh, Romans 8 there. Um, and so you're not just looking at the praising, but the weeping. 
And then if we, and then again, the interpretive lens that I had, I, I knew it went from first person singular to first person plural, but I didn't really think of that in that way until this conversation. And then if we're looking at that kind of whole piece of this is the day the Lord has made, let us now, and we see that's the kind of moment. And the save us means we're all together. And we already have this connection with the stones and, and this movement toward trying to make sure that Jesus isn't by himself or the stones aren't by themselves. Um, there is that connection that now is becoming the call from God to the fullness of the church that is quite literally God's hope that has always existed in the scriptural witness. Here I make creation. Here's the myth of the Garden of Eden. I make people. They're not complete until they're a community together. Take care of this. You have permission Prohibition, vocation, your vocation, take care of the guard. You didn't do quite well. Okay, let's try again. Now you're not doing well. I'm going to pull up these two people and try to do the whole project where I can have a holy nation and a priestly kingdom that will actually be one with me, whereby we might bless the fullness of this world. That didn't work. Okay, now here's my son who's like going to send you all out to all the corners of the world to the fullness where you get to the end of Revelation, whereby finally God's now doing it but everybody else gets to be there too because god's never wanted to do it alone and it's all made new which is this kind of hope and in the midst of all of this we're getting that little taste in it right now and then we get to see that palm sunday is just that little taste as well whereby it's that invitation to the fullness of the church to begin doing some of this kind of work that is the save us. Let the stones sing out. Let the church throw over its own tables to recognize we need to change. Let's weep over the state of some of the stuff. Let's give thanks in a way that actually changes things. And let's make sure that we begin to do it with awareness that is not just the ones we see in the mirror, the ones we see in the pews. But situate, uh, Garner Taylor has a sermon um, that I only remember the title of. I read it, but the title itself is good enough. It was a, a, a wide vision through a narrow window. And I was like, darn, I mean, I wish I could come up with sermon titles like that, but I'm not, I can't. So, you know, like we have our narrow little windows of life, but it's kind of an invitation to a wide vision um, for the fullness of things, the fullness of creation that is so easily made manifest, even as we did through this conversation of going from the I to we. Oh, God, now I'm going to be thinking of the Grapes of Wrath. Um, wonderful book, by the way. Maybe you can include it in your sermon. Um, <laughs> I to we. But uh, the I to we, that's the fullness, of, um, the fullness of creation. And again, the recognition that whatever little work our churches do, because this is one of those things that so often when we look at how hard things are, how bad things are, how overwhelming things are. I mean, you scream out to God for salvation, save us, save it all. But whatever work that we're doing can be so often met with the, the temptation to say, this is nothing. It's never nothing. Whatever bit we do that is pure gratitude in a response to God's grace, love, joy of today, the fullness of this kind of thing, whatever we do in response in our own gratitude is something that can be used to create something that's well beyond us. And, and, and I think that endlessly needs to be voiced today because it seems so hopeless sometimes that even taking that first kind of step is, uh, you know, like Reinhold Niebuhr said, any work worth doing will not be completed in your lifetime. And so it's just 
we have to be honest again. We're screaming for salvation, the types that we've heard before, but we might be those people who are stuck in Egypt for 400 years or stuck in Babylon for 80, how many ever years. Um, we may not get to see what happened. We might be the ones who die on the cross, but not quite sure what it's like to experience Easter. But we have to follow this one that's in Luke and we have to pay attention to the stones and we have to go from I to we. And it's not just in that way of Steinbeck and that way to the fullness of creation to recognize that kind of St. Francis of Assisi idea that there's, these are all brothers and sisters and thereby share this love that God has for all creation with all of creation and thereby our gratitude becomes something that God can use to change the future in a way that people feel that currently can't happen. Garrett, what was, what was the name of your sermon for uh, the, the Luke 19 passage? What was that again? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> don't let them shout out. I don't Will they, will they shout out alone? I don't yeah. Or, or will they, they do this it? alone? Will I mean, they do this alone? There we go. I mean, I think that's, that's the connection. You know, they're the move from the I to we, will they do this alone? Will we, will we praise alone? Will we, uh, will we enter through the gates of righteousness alone? Yeah. Will we weep alone? Will we beseech the Lord to save us alone? I mean, the call here seems to be no that we'll do this together and not just together in a human community, but together with the brothers and sisters and the rest of creation. Thank you for listening. We'll have two more pilot episodes, one for Monday, Thursday, and one for Easter early next week. For those episodes, Garrett Avery and I will be joined by Wilson Dickinson and Reverend Dr. Leah Shade from Lexington Theological Seminary. In the meantime, I'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions for the show. You can reach me at foodandfaithpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk again next week.